Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. And today we are, can you believe we're on episode 42, by the way? Is this going to be an explicit episode or not? I can't tell. <laughs> Probably. We're talking about Reaper Nose stuff. Yeah, I think we should do it. Yeah. So today we're talking about rights and specifically reproductive ones. So because we know that's a huge spectrum and we really would like to focus on some rights that directly affect women, especially as now we are actually in that election year. We're not even heading into it anymore. I know. Welcome to 2020. And if you're a man listening to this episode, do not tune out. We need you to be paying attention and helping us women out as well. So Happy New Year. And I know we've released a few episodes this year, but we recorded all of those last year in 2019 so that we could have a couple of weeks free and clear with our children and our families. Did you have a good time, Sasha? I did. I went to Louisiana and learned things, I think. <laughs> I'll just broadly say that. I learned things in Louisiana. Did you have a good break? I did. We had probably one of the best sort of holiday couple of weeks that we've ever had or we've had so far. It was incredible. And, you know, my husband traveled during part of it, but the kids and I had a running list of fun things to do, which ran the spectrum of like all the fancy stuff and also like, let's get rid of old toys. And it was still, it went well. Did you do anything with goats, by the way? I totally did not. And I forgot. My daughter is obsessed with goats. And my sister-in-law, who is incredibly thoughtful, got her a class, like a pass to go to goat yoga. So I had farm animals crapping on my yoga mat and <laughs> mashing their hooves into my shoulders. What did you say when I told you that I was doing this, Misasha? Uh, I said, I think that's the whitest thing you've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> so when she said that, I was like, really? And then I thought back to the 30 odd people who were in the room. And sure enough, everybody had a light complexion in that classroom. So that was interesting. It was an interesting thing. And it also made us kind of go, maybe we should compile a list of hashtag shit white people do, right? Yes. I would put goat yoga really high on the list. Maybe not the highest, though. I don't know. I can say for 100% certainty that you will not find my family members in a goat yoga class, though. <laughs> okay. All right. Fine. <laughs> so yes, it was a great vacation. But did anybody listen to our episode on 2020 Vision? And do you have your own words and intentions set for the year? Just a question. And I also wanted to say that I'm not sure we made the announcement on this podcast yet, but next weekend, like this coming weekend after this episode is releasing, when you're listening to it, we will be together in Denver, you and I, recording a live episode at the Denver Women's March. We were asked and invited to do that, which is such an honor. We're so grateful. So if you know anybody in Colorado, let them know. You can get tickets from the Women's March website. Yay. I can't wait. So excited to be there. And diving right into our topics, and especially with regard to our election issues, you know how we did that election issue kickoff, right? So we're moving on from that. We did a three-episode arc on the criminal justice system, which included the interview with a rock star public defender, and she's been dealing in the juvenile legal system. I was going to call it juvenile justice, but as we learned from Jusun, it is not juvenile justice per se. So although I feel like we've only scraped the surface in that conversation of the wealth of knowledge that Jusun has, and now we're back and ready to move on to our next key issue for the 2020 election, which are women's rights, and with a focus on our reproductive rights, we wanted to hit pause for just a second. 
Yeah. I mean, if you haven't checked out the series, go back and listen. But one thing we wanted to add on as a brief coda to that series right now is a quick look at what the president has the power to change with regard to criminal justice versus what he or she needs Congress to help with. Because remember, we're really talking about election issues right now. These are things we want you to think about for the presidential election coming up later this year and also for the primaries, which are right around the corner. So, Misasha, you dug up a great resource primer from the Marshall Project, which we can share now because, again, this is what the president has control over for the criminal justice system. Right. And it is really important as you listen to candidates talk about their own views about the criminal justice system, among others, to keep this in mind, because sometimes the president can act by him or herself. And other times the president needs Congress to ratify something in order for that to become law or to become an effective policy. So that's the filter that you should be using when you listen to candidates. And we've got some tools to help you figure out what those candidates' positions are, because it can be confusing. And as you're no doubt aware, we have had candidates joining the race. We've had candidates dropping out of the race. Candidates change or refine their positions. So with all of that in mind, we're going to do that brief primer on what the president can do. So the president can control through the attorney general a lot with regard to solitary confinement. And if you remember our criminal justice series where we specifically talked about the issues with solitary confinement, you know that this is a big topic. The president can direct the Bureau of Prisons to implement broad reforms, just like Obama did in 2016 when that administration ordered a ban on juvenile solitary confinement. So if you remember, though, that... Obama-era ban was on a federal level because the president can control federal policy, but even with regard to solitary confinement, he or she cannot control individual state decisions necessarily. So one thing in addition to consider with regard to solitary confinement, because again, there is such an impact on the individual, especially if that individual is a juvenile is to consider whether or not the president is a moral leader on that issue. That is to say, does he or she speak passionately about reforms? That's a really good indicator about what that president is thinking of doing with regard to solitary confinement. Because if there isn't that passion there, if there isn't that feeling of justice, then that is also the lack of that is a really good indicator as well. So a president could, however, also encourage reforms regarding solitary confinement at the state and local level by using federal funding as a tool. So experts said the federal government could pressure states to follow the example of Colorado, which is the only one to adopt the United Nations Nelson Mandela rule, which defines the holding of a prisoner in solitary confinement for over 15 days as torture. So that's huge because once you put torture on as a designation, that immediately moves it into a human rights issue, which is sort of outside of our criminal justice system. So really big. So which means that the president has a lot of power to directly affect federal policy and to work the back route into pressuring states and local governments to follow his or her cues. We're talking about police use of force because the president does have some leeway with regard to that wing of criminal justice as well. The president still, as the previous topic, lacks the power to directly regulate state, county, and local departments 
but several 2020 Democratic candidates proposed federal standards that would almost certainly come in the form of guidance from the U.S. Department of Justice or the FBI on best practices for use of force. So if that comes into play, that could push police departments to act in a few different ways. And I'm really excited. We just booked that interview. In a few months, we'll be able to talk to a man who heads up the Center for Policing Equity. So we will delve more into this topic later in the year for sure. So what about the use of federal funds for private prisons? And I think this is a very complicated topic, but every Democratic candidate has expressed at least moral opposition to private prisons, if not a clear policy goal for their abolition. So I'm going to interrupt with a question here. Remind me really quickly why private prisons are bad. And I'm pretty sure it has something to do with money. Yeah. But talk to me about that a little bit. It's exactly to do with money. And the problem is that private prisons are privately owned, hence the name. But that means that there are corporate interests in this individual private prison. The private prison, the prison system then becomes a for-profit organization. And the reason why that is problematic is because in the past, corporations have pressured judges to assign prisoners including juvenile offenders, to these for-profit private prisons, which because if you have a private prison, you want more inmates there so you can make more money, basically, coming from federal funds, coming from private money, and that's how you get richer. So the influence over the justice system that private companies can have when they have their private prisons is the really scary part of this equation. And that's why everyone's come out, every Democratic candidate has come out morally against private prisons. Got it. Okay, so tell me about the president's power with regarding that. Okay, so administratively, the president wields a fair amount of power on this issue. While private companies and private prisons only hold 8% of people incarcerated in the United States, but they have 15% of federal prisoners and more than 70% of immigration detainees. So that is a large skewing in certain populations. An incoming president could direct the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security not to contract with private detention companies. And as you know, the Department of Homeland Security really deals with immigration. So you are looking at removing a large chunk of that private prison population if the president were to say this. The Obama administration did this to limited effect in 2016 for federal prisons, and a Department of Homeland Security Advisory Council recommended to do the same for immigration detention later that year. However, the election of Donald Trump rapidly reversed that momentum in a massive financial boon for the industry. Interesting. Okay. Right. So currently we're in a private prison high and the Democratic candidates are suggesting that we go back to our prior policies and really look at refusing to contract with them. That makes sense to me personally, but okay. Then the bail system. Because right now, every time I think about bail, it's like you got to pay bail to get out of it. And nearly all the Democratic candidates favor limiting or eliminating money bail. But the president has little power to influence the practice directly because bail is set locally. So while the federal judicial system has all but abandoned bail, so if you're in a federal system, you don't have to pay money to get out of it. Most states allow cash bail as the primary instrument of pretrial release for criminal defendants. That said, the president does have 
the power of their voices so they could issue statements, convene White House events, assemble task forces to issue a report on the use of money bail. Otherwise, a president would mostly be limited to working with Congress to pass legislation like Bernie Sanders proposed no money bail act of 2018, which would offer grants to states to adopt alternatives. And again, this is important because of that longstanding correlation between skin color and incarceration rates. And then going back generations, that same another link between financial capacity and skin color since slavery and then the redlining policies. I mean, that's the way our system is structured. So the money bail system is definitely harder on a section of our population that can't afford it and is more often thrown into jail than the rich white people. Right. And the bail system is a billion dollar industry. It is a significant industry and it directly impacts the people who are least able to pay into it. So just to reiterate that, because it was shocking to me just how big the bail industry is. So besides bail, clemency is also a really big issue that the president has a lot of power over. And it may be the biggest one to look at when it comes to understanding how a particular candidate views criminal justice reforms. Clemency, which includes reversing criminal convictions, so that means you pardon someone, or shortening their prison sentence, which is a commutation. And together, those two are the president's most direct means to reduce incarceration. This action requires no approval from Congress, and as a matter of law, nothing could stop a president from releasing all of the approximately 216,000 federal prisoners on day one. And I think that you do hear this a lot when a president is coming to the end of their term. They really focus on these issues about who is he going to pardon or what is going to happen to some of the prisoners where they've been in the news recently. I think we've also seen that, and Sarah, you brought up this point, when Trump pardoned the Navy SEAL very recently, that many of his colleagues broke typical rank to accuse of atrocities. But it was totally in Trump's ability as president to pardon him without having any checks from Congress. So clearly, with the president having the last say, that means that you have a wide range for that power to be potentially abused as well. So it's really important that there is a candidate or an eventual president who understands the power behind this clemency ability. That's interesting. All right. Should felons vote? Yes. And, you know, we've talked about this a lot. And no candidates have outlined in detail how they would restore voting rights for current inmates and the formerly incarcerated. And this is a really hot issue. And as we've discussed, this comes up every election year. Pete Buttigieg has come the closest by proposing that felon enfranchisement, not disenfranchisement, but enfranchisement, be part of a 21st century Voting Rights Act. Many in the field have expressed support for the People Act, which passed the House but not the Senate, and would restore voting access to all those who have been convicted of a crime but are not currently in prison for a felony. The legislation would not change state laws, however, so states would be able to prevent those same citizens from voting in state and local elections. Do we want to touch on that really briefly, why this was even banned in the first place? Because on one hand, I do agree that people who make asinine decisions like shooting up a mall, like people who've clearly shown their inability to think through or who don't have the capacity to do that, who have made really, really, really poor decisions, I kind of don't want them to vote in our presidential election. And yet... This is linked historically to skin color, this policy. 
Right. And as we've discussed in past episodes, post-Civil War, when people were looking for a way to keep slavery in place, just not call it slavery, they really hit upon the prison system as a way to have Black people, predominantly Black people, convicted of crimes. And then once they were convicted of these crimes and they were felons, they were put into work in like a chain gang or in other forms in which they were going to be permanently removed or put at a lesser rank within society. And that was related to their voting abilities, too. Some states have really held on to that very tightly, especially in the South, where they have worked very hard to keep felons disenfranchised completely, regardless of whether or not you are in prison, you how long ago your felony was, anything along the spectrum. So it's very important to keep in mind that this has historically been tied to race in our country. All right. Should pot be legal? I'm going to take this one because I live in Colorado and I say yes. But a new president could move to downgrade cannabis's designation as a Schedule One controlled substance, even without Congress. And that would probably need to start with a Department of Justice request for a review of the scientific literature on the drug involving agencies like Health and Human Services, the Food and Drug Administration, and the Drug Enforcement Agency. And a congressional bill, though, like the recently proposed Moore Act, could accomplish the feat much faster. And so I think, you know, with all those organizations in place, putting structures around it, like we do for alcohol, it is an interesting way to generate revenue and tax revenue, I think. But that's my opinion. This is, we're going back to what the president can control. So let me shush. (laughs) Yes, we, I live in California, date where it's legal. And yeah, that is a key issue, clearly. Another key issue is sentencing mandatory minimums, which is, in other words, setting a range with a stated minimum time for sentences. So the absolute minimum that you could receive if you were convicted of a certain crime. When he signed the 2018 First Step Act, President Trump made marginal reductions to federal mandatory minimums. But a new president could become a vocal supporter of legislation to really push back against the very strict federal sentencing guidelines even further. Some advocates are pushing for a second look legislation to give all prisoners the right to have their sentencing reevaluated after a number of years, no matter their crime. Cory Booker introduced a Senate version of this legislation earlier this year. More, most immediately, a new administration could, through its attorney general, reverse the 2017 Jeff Sessions memo, again, my favorite guy, that requires federal prosecutors to seek the most severe possible penalties. By contrast, under President Obama, Attorney General Eric Holder ordered federal prosecutors in 2013 to exercise restraint in charging to limit the number of people facing harsh mandatory minimum sentences. So 2013, prosecutors were urged to be really mindful about those mandatory minimums. And then in 2017, Jeff Sessions said, no, it should be the most severe penalties possible. So you can see the full spectrum, basically, over a span of four years. And that change can happen very quickly, and it has a direct impact on a huge percentage of people who are heading to prison, who are in prison, especially if there is a second look legislation that is a possibility. That's really interesting, because in that interview with Jisun, we talked about how it's not, our system is not meant for rehabilitation and reentry right now. It's meant for this abstract notion of punishment. And if you think about the human beings, regardless of the choices they made that landed them in prison, the human beings that are in there are people that are part of our society. So how do we want to treat them as humans is probably not 
locking them away forever and ever. But again, depends on the views of people in power, I guess. And this last one, immigration. Huge and especially important in 2020 because the president can make a huge difference in immigration. In the broad sense, immigration is one of the few law enforcement arenas that is almost totally a federal function and where a future presidential administration could act quickly and authoritatively. An incoming president could virtually remake the entire system by appointing leaders specifically at the Department of Homeland Security with a progressive mindset towards enforcing or not enforcing certain aspects of immigration law. And that has been done before. Basically, a new administration comes in, they immediately change the head of DHS, and the policies start shifting pretty rapidly. So this could be a very quick change, but it is largely within the control of the president. And that cannot be understated, especially considering what is happening right now in our country. That is fascinating. So if you want to see how each candidate stands on each of the issues that we've talked about, check out the Marshall Project, which is a nonprofit dedicated to criminal justice. They have an article that allows you to read more about each of these issues and see where each candidate's position is. I am planning to draft an email with this whole criminal justice arc and some of the key points. So I can include that in that. So if you're not on our email list, get on it or just Google search it yourself. All right, let's go to something lighter, you know? Let's just talk about women's rights and reproductive rights. That's easy. No, it is a big topic with even bigger ramifications if you have a vagina in this country or if you know of someone who has one. So why is this crucially important now in an election year? Because the candidates for president and whoever becomes president has a direct impact on a woman's right to control her own body. Right. And this came up just this week. So as we mentioned at the start, we're recording this in the first full week of 2020 in January. And as reported by Bustle this week, the United States Supreme Court has been asked to consider overturning Roe v. Wade, which is the landmark 1973 ruling that found that criminalizing abortion violates constitutionally protected privacy rights. So this week, over 200 members of Congress filed an amicus brief in support of Louisiana's so-called Unsafe Abortion Protection Act, which will be going before the Supreme Court in March. If the court rules in support of the Louisiana law restricting abortion access, it could effectively overturn abortion protections nationwide. So let's back up and, you know, I'll take off my lawyer hat or kind of move it to the side for a second because there I see you. <laughs> Just for me. Yay. I see you. An amicus brief is a legal document filed by people who aren't technically involved in the case, which means they aren't the plaintiff. They weren't the people who brought the case in the first place. But they have an interest in this case for a, whatever reason. And they are trying to provide additional information and context to judges. These briefs are meant to influence judicial decision making by providing arguments to flesh out one side of a case or another. And I have been on amicus briefs. I've written amicus briefs on behalf of certain organizations. So this is a very common thing to do. But here it's particularly interesting that it comes from Congress. And in this instance, the amicus brief pertains to a case called June Medical Services, LLC 
versus Gee. The 2014 case challenged the Louisiana law, which is not currently in effect, that would require doctors performing abortions have admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles of their clinic. So basically, if you wanted to be performing an abortion, you had to be admitted, which means you had to have the rights to do this at a hospital within a certain radius of their clinic. The law in question is very similar to a Texas law that was overturned in the 2016 case, Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt, we'll talk about that in more detail a little bit later, which found that legislation placed undue burdens on pregnant people seeking abortions. According to the American Academy of Family Physicians, limitations on abortion rights like these only create unnecessary medical risks for people seeking abortions rather than offering any improvement to the care provision. So if the court upholds the extreme restrictions placed on doctors outlined in the Louisiana law, the state would be left with only one abortion clinic. So, P.S., remember how I said I went to Louisiana and learned things? One of the things that I learned is coming from California, which is a massively gigantic state, it is still, if you're in Louisiana and there's one abortion clinic, that clinic would be ours from certain parts of the state. And considering that people from other states, because Louisiana is sort of situated near a whole bunch of other states, people are driving four to five to seven hours from other states to go to clinics in Louisiana to get legal abortions. So if you think about the impact on not only Louisiana and women needing abortions in the state of Louisiana, but women from all the surrounding states that are coming to Louisiana. I mean, if you're driving that far and then you have the procedure, it's not like a day trip, right? That's a hell of a long way to drive, to get a procedure, presumably not feel all that great emotionally and physically afterwards, and then drive back. I mean, people who need to pay, have jobs to pay their bills, who may not have the gas for their car, who may not have people who can drive them, that really, really limits access big time. Yes. And if you want more facts about this 2014 case, there is a great NPR article that we'll be putting in our email that highlights the various factions within Louisiana that brought this case to light and that got through the Fifth Circuit appeals process before heading to the Supreme Court. So remember, if you are to get to the Supreme Court, you basically have to go through two other separate court hearings, trials, appeals to get there. And the Supreme Court has to decide to hear your case, too. So there's a lot of steps to get there, which makes this case very, very important. But back to this amicus brief. So this amicus brief, signed by 168 members of the House of Representatives and 39 senators, criticized the physicians, lawyers, and patient advocates seeking to uphold the protections provided by Roe v. Wade. All right, I'm raising my hand here. That seems like a lot of people, but what percentage of those people, I mean, I don't think you know the answer off the top of your head, but that's a large percentage of each of those governmental bodies. And to me, that seems like that's probably a lot more men than women, right? I would assume. Yeah, well, there's 100 senators, right? So that's 39%. 39 is, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the House of Representatives is, is much larger, but still you're looking at least a third of the House of Representatives. And they're saying, no, we don't agree. Like, oh my gosh, right? Like they're basically saying we should not keep Roe versus Wade right. by signing the Samikas brief. Right. The brief dismisses advocates, quote, doomsday predictions that restrictions like Act 620, which are acts designed to keep abortions safe and legal, will make abortions inaccessible and therefore unsafe, citing the fact that there are still clinics providing abortions in the state. Hellerstedt, which is that 2016 Texas case, has aggravated the already unworkable standards set out in Roe and uh, several other cases that has come up since Roe versus Wade. And the court should reconsider those precedents, the brief wrote. 
And, you know, those other decisions that they mentioned, we'll talk about those too. The brief does not acknowledge that restrictions like those being proposed have resulted in the closing down of all but three abortion clinics across the entire state of Louisiana. So keep in mind, the result of this happening would be that there is one clinic available. Right now, there are only three, and none of them are in New Orleans, by the way. And women are still traveling. It's not like you're going to your Planned Parenthood down the street. You are still traveling hours at this rate. This would just make it even more difficult and potentially illegal. Wasn't there an amicus brief signed by a whole bunch of women? I think you and I talked about it like a month or two ago saying these are why abortion rights need to remain or like they all said that they had. Am I making this up? Yes. Well, and that was the thing. In amicus brief, as I mentioned, you have to have an interest, which means like you can't just write an amicus brief to the court about anything. You have to have been in a position to have a vested interest in this. And so the amicus brief that you're talking about was written by women who were attorneys who had had abortions. So that is that gives you a particular vested interest in the outcome. But it is very powerful because I had never heard of anything like that before. And that is an incredible way for women to use their voices. However, going back to Louisiana and the Bustle article, the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine found in a 2018 report that legal abortions are overwhelmingly safe. In fact, the report found abortions are safer for pregnant people when they have ready access to medical care. And more on this later, but one guess as to which group of women this impacts more, and hint, it's not white women or women with means to travel. In states where that access is limited, there are more boundaries to effective and safe care, which seems intuitive, but it is still such a legal issue right now. The burden of requiring abortion providers to maintain active admitting privileges at nearby hospitals would dramatically restrict access to safe abortion services across Louisiana. Beyond the state, too, abortion rights would be at risk. If the court upholds Act 620, which is this requirement that you have to have admitting privileges, it would set a precedent that would jeopardize the medical and privacy protections provided by Roe v. Wade. So the case won't come before the court until March, right at the start of primary season. But until then, advocates maintain that being forced to obtain hospital admitting privileges can take abortion-providing clinics months or even years, because not surprisingly, you ask for those admitting privileges. It's not just a rubber stamp. It is very difficult to get, depending on where you are and who you're dealing with. Major medical and legal groups, including the American Medical Association, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, American Academy of Pediatrics, they have all signed on to another amicus brief outlining that abortions are extremely safe and that restrictions like those proposed by this act are both medically unnecessary and harmful to potential patients' health. Wow. So that's where we're at, hey? Yeah. I mean, we are in an era where Roe v. Wade is being challenged. I mean, I think... Personally, right now, think of any woman you know, think of the girls you know, and the world that could look so dramatically different for them, depending on what happens with this next election. I think it's important, though, to understand in order to really get the scope and the impact of this, as well as sort of this arc of reproductive rights in our country, we've got to understand some key milestones in this process, and also the difference in rights when it comes to white women and women of color. So if you're ready, we can talk about it. Bustle put together a great highlight reel of key moments in reproductive rights starting from 1916. So let's do it. 1916, a woman named Margaret Sanger 
opened the country's first birth control clinic in Brooklyn. So this is just over a hundred years ago. And when she opened this first birth control clinic, she was arrested under the Comstock law, which forbade talking about or distributing information about birth control. That didn't stop her. And luckily, because her one clinic later grew to become the International Women's Health Organization Planned Parenthood. So yay, Margaret. Then in 1938, so basically over 20 years after that first clinic opened in Brooklyn, the federal ban on birth control was lifted. The ban, which was part of the Comstock Law, said that talking about contraception was obscene and doctors could be jailed for prescribing any type of contraception. And so this is, you know, the birth control pill didn't exist. We're talking about condoms and diaphragms. And to put this date in perspective... The process of sperm fertilizing egg in order to create a pregnancy and a baby, it was not known until 1875. So in 1875, they figured out how pregnancy works. They figured out eventually how to keep pregnancies from happening. The conversation we're having about the federal ban is about 60 years after the process of pregnancy was discovered. And now people are finally allowed to talk about birth control more openly, and they were considering allowing it. And just as a parallel whatever you make of it. In terms of year gaps, keep in mind in this country, that 60 year gap, desegregation started just over 60 years ago to where we are now. So yes, a lot can change and very little can change in 60 years. It takes, we have to start taking a long view on some of the things that we're talking about and not be so worried in these four year increments. But anyway. Sanger wrote in The New Republic in 1938, it's one of the anomalies of modern civilization that the forces of bigotry, reaction, and legalism could so long have kept on the federal statute books a law that classed contraceptive information with obscenity and was interpreted to prevent physicians from prescribing contraceptives. Year after year, this vicious law legally tied the hands of reputable physicians while quacks and purveyors of bootleg contraceptives and, quote, feminine hygiene articles and formulas flourished. It was an absurd situation in which the federal law, in effect, nullified the laws of practically every state. Mm. So that was 1938. Then 1960, the pill comes around. The initial funding for the pill was provided by, guess who? Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood. She raised $150,000 in 1950 while she was in her 80s. We have a lot of time to use our voices here. <laughs> but it wasn't until May 9th, 1960, that the FDA approved of hormonal contraceptives. The pill had been available before that, but it was prescribed for irregular menstruation with birth control listed as a possible side effect. By 1959, so nine years later, half a million women were using Enovid, which was the first pill specifically for its side effect. And I was just mentioning to you before we recorded about how I was watching the marvelous Mrs. Maisel and she, the third season is set in 1960 and she specifically talks about the pill as part of one of her acts, which I was like, oh, look, it is all merging together. But it's hard to be in that mindset to think about that where the pill was just available. And as we're going to talk about for just a small section of the population, too. But let's get back into some law, because why not? So in 1965, there was a landmark case called Griswold versus Connecticut. So while the federal ban on birth control was lifted in 1938, that didn't mean that states couldn't implement their own laws, as we are very clear here about states' rights. But on June 6th, 1965, this landmark case of Griswold versus Connecticut made it illegal for states to ban contraception for married couples. So if you were married, contraception was cool. However, if you weren't married, you were still going to need to wait several years for that to change. And weren't we just, we talked beforehand, I'm like, 
wasn't there like hippies and like in the 60s? I mean, I had no idea that birth control was not legal for unmarried people in the 1960s. Same. So fast forward three years, 1968, IUDs, intrauterine devices, there became increasingly popular as a super effective form of long-term reversible birth control. They did have a rocky history in this country. They were invented in the early 1900s, but they weren't approved by the FDA until 1968. But after the Dalcon Shield, I guess was one of the names of the IUDs, caused ectopic pregnancies, infections, and even sterilization in women, they were largely off the market for a couple of decades. Nowadays, though, I mean, both the copper and low-dose hormonal IUDs are considered safe and effective. So that's cool. So... And in 1970, we had this period of time called the Nelson Pill Hearings, which is when the pill came to Congress. So 10 years after the approval of the pill, feminist Barbara Seaman published a book called The Doctor's Case Against the Pill. The book drew attention to the fact that some women were suffering from side effects from the pill. It also led to congressional hearings about oral contraceptives. And this part was just mind blowing, at which only men testified. So, I mean, who clearly knew a lot about that because they were taking them. No, they didn't. So clearly this is an issue of letting men decide things about women's body and that this pattern has continued throughout time and is still continuing largely. So pissed off about the fact that no women were being heard at a hearing that was directly about women's health, feminist Alice Wolfson jumped up during the hearings and asked why there were no women testifying. Why had you assured the drug companies that they could testify, Wolfson asked. Why have you told them that they could get top priority? They aren't taking the pills. We are. In a scene that's all too similar to something that we recently experienced with Senator Mitch McConnell censoring Senator Elizabeth Warren, Wolfson was told to stand down. However, her boldness and subsequent protests by her fellow feminists led to significant changes in hormone levels in the pill and a patient insert about possible side effects included with every prescription. Feminists testified about the safety of the pill, particularly hormone levels and side effects, and that led to changes in hormone levels in the end of her contraception. Interesting. Yes. What? Women's voices made our medicine better for us? That's amazing. That is very surprising. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, this one's a case, but I guess I just want to mention it. In 1967, Professor William Baird gave vaginal foam and a condom to a woman after giving a lecture at Boston College about birth control and population. He was then arrested and convicted for violating Massachusetts state law, which said that contraception could not be distributed to unmarried people and could only be distributed by a registered healthcare professional. He appealed, and this case was resolved in his and in all single people's favor by the Supreme Court in 1972 in that case called Einstadt versus Baird. I know. Again, <laughs> until 1972, single people couldn't get birth control? I mean, just think about the black market for birth control. That must have been unbelievable, too. And the channels, it is so reminiscent of so many ways in which we've dealt with reproductive rights in this country having very strict standards and having unsafe side black market channels to try and accomplish that. Yeah, I'd be so curious to find out what was happening for, you know, the black market abortions once you accidentally got pregnant. Like, I mean, you hear horror stories of hangers and blah, blah, blah. But beyond that, what was happening with adoption rates and orphanages? Yeah. Like, I actually don't know much about that in this period or how they've tracked alongside reproductive right differences through history in our country here? No, that's a great question. 
Definitely, because that would be super interesting to consider if you don't have contraception available to single people without that's not coming from a healthcare professional until 1972. And 1972 brings us right to 1973 and Roe v. Wade, which was, again, that Supreme Court case that made it illegal for states to interfere with first trimester abortions. That case overturned Texas state law and has stood at the front lines of abortion rights ever since then. And that's the case that's being challenged currently. Wow. And it was about first trimester abortions. I didn't realize that it was very specific to that and not late term. It's about first trimester abortions. So, yes. 1998, coming into times when many of us were alive, emergency contraception was approved. That morning after pill, the FDA finally said, okay, we can do that. And it made it that much easier to prevent an unwanted pregnancy. And then 2010, decade ago, the Affordable Care Act made contraception available without a copay. So this was signed in March of 2010. They said that contraception is a form of preventative care. And so for the first time in history, most forms of contraception were available for free to any woman with health insurance. Amazing. Yeah. Which is great. Yeah. Because that shit's not cheap. <laughs> no, it is not. And then we head right into 2016, which was that case we talked about earlier, Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstadt. Texas has had a long history of restricting access to abortion. Remember Roe versus Wade, which overturned a Texas state law. But on June 27, 2016, the Supreme Court ruled again against Texas and for reproductive rights in the case of Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstadt. In this case, the court decided that it was unconstitutional for states to place an undue burden via TRAP laws on women seeking abortion. And TRAP stands for Targeted Regulation of Abortion Providers and includes laws that require abortion clinics to be ambulatory surgical centers, among other things. Wow. So that's good. But we'll see what happens now. Again, with the makeup of the Supreme Court having changed since 2016, this is why the presidential election matters, because again, they have power to appoint Supreme Court justices for life. So going this history, we just talked about 100 years of reproductive rights. It's a long fight. And we've made some serious progress along the way. But two questions come up. Have we made progress? And has that progress been made on behalf of all women or just white women or wealthy women? Right. And in our next two episodes, we will explore certain ways in which white women and women of color are not similarly situated when it comes to reproductive rights and or control over their own bodies. Our next episode will look at the history of this divide and focus on certain issues such as sterilization, abortion, and the impact of both of these on both groups. Then we have our special live episode from the Women's March Denver that will focus on the different narratives that we have when we think about sexual assault. Uh, spoiler or teaser, do we always imagine the victim to be white first? Stay tuned. If you like what you've heard or you like what you're hearing, please take a second to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you use. It would mean a lot. That helps us spread the word about our podcast. Or if you're into direct sharing, tell a friend or five about us. And if you want any more information, go to our website at dearwhitewomen.com. We've got all the past episodes, email signups, and all our social media links from there so you can stay connected and get all the bonus material that we offer. 